Father, once again, we are so thankful for being here. We're so thankful for each and every one that is here and for the unique personalities and, and abilities each bring. And we know that the body of Christ, the church, as it meets together, needs every one of those individual gifts, every one of those personalities, and they all add and they all help. And so, Father, we're thankful for everyone being here, and we're thankful for the time we have. May this service this morning be a blessing, and especially may the next service, as, as Brother Courtney speaks, that it might be a, an additional blessing. Thank you for this time, and thank you for each one who's here again, as we say in our Savior's name. Amen. And for the benefit of any who may join us online uh, later at some point or be watching live, my notes are available, as they always are, on, on our website, uh, bbc.org. Uh, not BBC. That's, that's, that was back when I was in seminary, Grace Bible of Titusville. You have to pardon me. That was our seminary address. There's good information there, too. But uh, if you go to our church website and under view documents and go to my file, you'll find everything I've done, most of what I've done in the last couple of years I've taught here. And so this one is called Concerning the Book of Hebrews, and uh, it's, it's going to be there too if you just look through the file I've got. So this morning we're coming back to a study that we began. Now, we've been doing a series that we call Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And it's been one of the, one of the most profound advances I've ever had in my learning and understanding when I finally realized that most of the questions that we get asked as Bible teachers about the scriptures can be answered by three things. Context, context, context. I had a professor in seminary who used to say that all the time. He'd just shake his head and say, context, context, context. And really, when we think, we have problems. And so I called this series starting last September, September of 21, Problems We Don't Have When We Take Scripture Literally. And there are many things that we don't understand very well. And one of them is the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is a book that, as we mentioned, it's not taught a lot because people don't always understand all of the intricacies in it. And there's some problems in their understanding. So we're, we've been dealing with that. And we want to go into the main part of this series on that, on this, on this message on that. And the, the problem that you have with the book of Hebrews, amongst many, the biggest single problem is that people don't understand that these were a saved group of people. Some think they were a mixed group. Some think they were people that were almost saved and, trying to, and they were trying to be persuaded by the writer of Hebrews, which is Paul, I believe. And, and then there's, there's some serious warnings in the 10th chapter about fiery judgment coming, about sinning willfully. And that has caused some believers to wonder, am I going to get hit with a bolt of lightning if I sin? Because all sin is willful in the true sense of the word. We, all, we have to determine. We have to will to sin. We don't just sin by accident. Not in under dispensation of grace. And so there's problems that come from there. But now, the difficulty with the book of, of Hebrews is that it is a book that has what we call transitions in it. If you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the book of James, you see what we call transitional material. Until the whole New Testament was completed... There were temporary provisions made in different places for believers to live by, and they were replaced over time. And it's not to say that, that you disregard those things, but there are things in the book of Acts that you wouldn't want to practice. I don't think anybody here wants to give away all their possessions to the church and let the church decide who gets what. I mean, I don't, I don't think too many people want to do that. I know I, I probably wouldn't do it, but that was something that was done. And there are other things, and you find things in the book of James that show that they were still playing with the law. Now, when we get into the book of Hebrews, what we're looking at is we're looking at a group of individuals who were not willing to give up the law and move into the dispensation of grace. 
law was the issue with the law in the early church was never can a person get saved by keeping it that was never the issue the issue was can you become a mature Christian can you mature by keeping the law and you can see you can see that let's just by way of review before we jump into the main part of our lesson I want you to go to Acts chapter 21 because you can see here these were saved individuals they were not trying. To, they were not talking about the law in terms of this is how I get saved from my sin. This is this is what I believe instead of the gospel. These are individuals who are already saved, and, and there's no question about their condition. But the problem that you have is that they were Jews. They had lived, and the Jews had lived for 1,500 plus years under the law, and they weren't just willing to give it up. And that's that's not too surprising when you consider that that was what they lived by. That was what they were. The heathen knew them by. That was what they were persecuted by in, in the history. But in Acts chapter 21, beginning, beginning at verse 20, this is Paul's reporting to his, his missionary journey and his, his, his doings to the church at Jerusalem. It says that when they heard it, they glorified the Lord and said unto him, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews there are which believe. Now notice there are thousands of Jews which believe, and they're all zealous. Or if you please, it really should be zealots of the law. And they're informed of you that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. That is exactly what Paul was teaching. This was a correct assessment. But the point of this section of scripture is to see the church at Jerusalem was still trying to keep the law. But you see, it says that they were believers in verse 20. So it's not a matter of, are you keeping the law to get initially saved? No, no. Are you keeping the law as a method of how you live as a Christian? Or what we would call present tense salvation. How do you live as a Christian? Do you keep the law? Now, be careful, folks. Today... There are many Christians, and I just saw, I glanced at a commentary this morning that mentioned the moral law. Now, when you look at the Old Testament law of Moses and you come to the New Testament, there is no such a thing as a division between moral law and ceremonial law. It does talk about ceremonies, but it doesn't separate the Ten Commandments as being the moral law of God because there are some who take that and make that distinction, which is not found in Scripture, and say, we live by the moral code of law. The moral law is still in effect. The ceremonial law is done away in Christ, but the moral... No, that's not true. You will not find one verse that, that separates the Ten Commandments that calls them the moral code or the moral law or anything of the sort. You'll find the law was considered as a unit, and it was set aside, and that's the issue here. You'll notice it says that, that you're going to get rid of the law. You're going to get rid of the forsake Moses and that was say forsake Moses in other words Moses was the one that wrote the first five books which include which is the law so if you forsake Moses you're forsaking the law the whole thing not just part of it the whole thing and that was the issue now that has caused many problems for people that and we still have that problem today there are people who want to keep the law today in some fashion and, and I you run across it but the big problem with misunderstanding this book I want to consider it in terms of of, of one simple fact to start off. And our theme this morning is, you, you misunderstand this book. My theme is that, you, that this book was written to early believers who were willing to go back to the law because of persecution. They were believers who wanted to go back to the law because of persecution. Now, the first thing I want to establish is the fact, are these people believers? Because there are many who say, well, maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. Maybe some are, maybe some aren't. And some say, no, none of them are, and it's an appeal to them. But let's, let, let's, let's make this easy. Let's let Scripture say what it says. And we don't have to make any of this up. I'd much rather let Scripture speak. 
because my opinions are usually, um, I find, I hate finding out so many of my opinions are wrong, but as I get older, I have to admit that some of the opinions I used to hold are wrong, and sometimes I still have problems with with my opinions on many things, like cars. I won't go any further than that. <laughs> I, I won't say anything about that. But so, are these, the first thing we want to establish is, are these Christians? And let's go to Hebrews chapter 5. Now, we're going to primarily stay in the book of Hebrews. And uh, I like better when we can just let Scripture say what it says. And I don't have to make too, many, too much commentary, except maybe to explain some of the nuances of the language. And d- doing that is, is so easy, because when the Bible speaks and makes it so clear and simple, our job is so easy. Our job, Brother Courtney knows what I'm talking about. He, he's in agreement with me here. So if you look at Hebrews chapter 5. Now, in this fifth chapter, Paul is talking about the Melchizedekian priesthood. He starts to talk about how Christ was going to become a priest after the order of Melchizedek. But then all of a sudden, in verse 10, he says, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now he stops and says, of whom or concerning whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are dull of hearing. Now, if you notice, I put in the notes that that are dull is really, it's, it it's, should be translated, have become dull. It do, they were, it's, in the past, at some point, they had become dull with the present result. They were still dull, as, as Paul is writing them. Now, if you stop and think, what does that have to do with being saved? Well, is an unsaved person dull of hearing about Scripture? No, we could just simply say they're deaf. They don't listen to you. You could write in your notes, and maybe you should, write 1 Corinthians 2, verses 13 and 14 in your notes. Because that's something you might want to go back to. Uh, and, and it tells you something very important. That the unsaved person is not too terribly interested in what God has to say. And it's, you know, we think of unsaved people, and uh, sometimes people want to use the Bible to convince the unsaved people that things like uh, homosexuality is wrong and so forth and so on. Well, you know, if you do that, you're going to find that you get a pretty nasty response. I think the easiest way to tell them that it's wrong is just say, look at nature. Do you find homosexual animals? Do you find animals that don't know what gender they are? (laughs) I don't think you do. You know, it's just, it's against nature, in other words. Because if you use scripture, you're going to run up against the problem you see here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Now, Paul is speaking about the wisdom of God and some of the deeper things that God has prepared. And he even says back in verse verse, um, 8, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Now, that's talking about the wisdom of God, what God's plan for the believer. And if the people of Jesus' time had known what was going to be provided in salvation, they wouldn't have put him on the cross. That's what it's telling you. But you'll notice down in verse 12, he says, Now we have received not the spirit of this world, but the spirit which is of or from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God, which things we speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches compared spiritual things with spiritual, and I would say ones. Because there's a change. The same word spiritual is in two different forms. One of them is a neuter, it's a spiritual thing with spiritual ones. In other words, the Holy Spirit will take spiritual things, he'll compare them with spiritual ones. A spiritual believer will have the Holy Spirit teach him is what it's telling you. But now it goes on to say something. But, notice the distinction, but the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them. Know by experience. This is the word for know by experience. 
He can't know them by experience because they're spiritually discerned. Now, that word receive is an important word. It's a word that you'd see at a wedding. If after a wedding, they have a, what they call a receiving line. Now, at the receiving line, they're the, people, the, couple, the young couple standing there, and they're, not, they're shaking hands and greeting people. People aren't giving them gifts. That's already in the reception hall. The receiving line is they're just basically they're welcoming, and that's the idea of this word, to welcome. It tells you something in 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural man does not welcome the things of God. They don't want to hear it. They can't know it by experience, but before it even gets so far, they don't even want to hear it. So be careful. If you talk to unsaved people and you want to tell them, well, the Bible says this is about homosexuality, and they're unsaved, what does it say? They're not going to welcome it. So be careful of how you deal. If you ever deal with those kind of people, now really, we, we do well to remember that in 1 Corinthians 6, it says God judges those on the outside. I'm not going to straighten the world out because who does the world belong to, by the way? Who's, who's running the world system right now? Satan's running it. Isn't God running this whole mess out there? So I'm not going to try and clean up Satan's mess. Well, I'm not working for Satan. But whether people know it or not, if they're trying to clean up the world system, they're actually helping Satan. They're actually working for him. Now, if you put it that way, it makes me think, I don't want to do that. I don't want to. It's not my job. It, that's, that's a job I, I can't do. And besides, if Satan wanted to clean the mess up, don't you think he could do it? Yeah, I think he has the ability to do some of it. But we're getting far afield from where we wanted to be. But going back to Hebrews then, you can say that, well, if these people had become dull of hearing, it meant that they could hear. It means that they were welcoming. It means that they were learning. Well, then they have to be believers. So right there, that one verse alone should prove. But that's not, that's not all. There's more. And I want you to see. Uh, it's what we call overkill in a way. Because you could use one verse and say, here it is. But when you look at the... the ongoing nature with scripture uh, and by the way Troy we got notes in the back there's on the back chair uh, you can see that there is more than that if you go down just a little further to Hebrews chapter 6 and you're in chapter 5 just go down to chapter 6 now he makes it he makes a warning that we'll talk about in a few minutes that is misrepresented and misunderstood and misinterpreted to say you can lose your salvation you can do this that. we'll look at that in a second but right after he says that he says in verse 9 of Hebrews 6 but we, beloved, now you notice he calls him beloved. If you just stop there, would you call an unsaved person beloved? Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Would you be calling the unsaved people beloved? I don't think you'd want to do that. He said, but we, beloved, are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak for or explanatory, because God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which you have showed toward his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. They were still doing some ministry. Now, please, do unsaved people minister to saints, to Christians? I don't think you'd ever want to get an unsaved person up in the pulpit or in the lectern. I don't think they would teach you anything. In fact, if anything, they would undermine what you believe. They don't believe what we do. But so these are individuals. They were ministering. And you notice it says they were ministering and it was a work and labor of love. Now that word for love is the, love, the word for the love of God. The love of God, agape love, for those that know the Greek. You've heard that word, I hope. Agape love is something that is not possible for an unsaved person. It's God's kind of love. It's part of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is something that you and I do not have by nature. We don't have it. If we did have it, why would the Holy Spirit have to give it to us after salvation if we already had it? The potential's not there. So, 
these were these are definitely saved people because they were serving in love, and they were doing uh, a lot of good things. Now, if you look backwards a little bit, go back to Hebrews chapter three, and you'll see a little bit more. Hebrews chapter three, verse one. Look what he says here. Now, would you say this to an unsaved person? Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our of our confession, our profession, Jesus Christ. Holy brethren. Now, are those unsaved people? No, you're not going to call unsaved people holy brethren. And it says partakers of the holy of the of the heavenly calling, that call to salvation. These are partakers of it. Now, there's just absolutely no way, there is no way at all that you can even begin to suggest that these were unsaved people. There's no way. These are saved people. It's over and over and over again. So, that, I mean, that's pretty clear. Now, one other passage on this, if you look over at the 10th chapter, there's a really serious warning in here that uh, this is one that people have wondered about, and a, a very good friend of mine asked a question about it because he was concerned and, and somewhat frightened by what he read here in, in this chapter. And uh, if you look down at, after verses 26 through 29, uh, we'll go on and read those, and we'll read down to verse um, uh, 34, 35, and along there to get the, 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 verse, the verses we're looking for. It says in verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we receive knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. Now, stop there for just a second. Is, is sin willful? Do we will to sin? Well, according to James chapter 1, I only sin when I act upon something that is a temptation that I've decided I'm interested in. And I look at it and I say, yeah, I'm going to do this. In other words, all my sin is willful. I determined to do all of it. So in other words, if we sin willfully, so that would be any sin. So be careful. It says, if we sin willfully after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin but a certain fearful looking for judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be thought worthy who, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified and a holy thing and done despot under the spirit of grace. Wow. Now that sounds bad if that's for today. But we're going to see what this was about. And when we take it literally and keep it in context, we're going to find out that this is not something that you should be concerned with. Willful sin like this and this fiery judgment. Well, 1 Corinthians 11, we'll talk, we'll mention that too as we get there. But then he says in verse uh, 30, it says, For we know him who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will recompense, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God, but... Now, right after that warning, which sounds so terrible, and it isn't a very cheerful warning, but call to remembrance the former days in and, and, and which after you were illuminated, you endured a great flight of afflictions, partly while you were made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly while you became companions of, of them that were so used. For you, for you took compassion of me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that you have a better and enduring, in, in heaven, a better and enduring substance. Now, you can stop there. If nothing else, that last phrase, knowing you have a better and enduring substance in heaven, does an unsaved person have that? <laughs> no. It's pretty obvious they don't. And what strikes me is that if we just take the Bible literally, there are problems we won't have. This is another problem we won't have. 
in coming to the book of Hebrews, if you don't understand that these people were saved people, then you're not going to really understand the book because it becomes a hodgepodge of things of, well, they're doing this, well, they're doing that. And all you'd have to do is read a commentary and you'd know why, as uh, in the first study we had in this some months back, I had two quotes of people who admitted that most pastors don't like to come to the book of Hebrews. And in essence, it amounts to the fact they don't really understand it themselves. They don't understand it. So I can understand if you don't understand it, you don't want to teach it. Same thing is true with Revelation. People have a problem with that. Now, having said that, so our first point was that these were definitely believers, not unbelievers or a mixed multitude. This was a group of individual believers. And secondly, and this is the top of page two if you're following the notes, secondly, we want to go to Hebrews 6 again, and we want to see that they were right on the verge of giving up Christianity and going back to live under Judaism. And that's going to explain, we're going to see how that explains what is said in chapter 10. Because without understanding it correctly, without taking it literally, chapter 10 sounds like something that could happen today. You could get, oh, fearful indignation, fiery judgment from God for sin? Whew, I don't know if I want that. But let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, if I might stop at this point, the doctrine of the Christ. Now, why is that important? Well, if you write in the margin of your notes, see 1 Corinthians 12, 12, and 13. You might want to do that because it tells you that the Christ is the body which we call the church. Or it's what they call the universal church. Theologians call it the universal church. I prefer to call it the body of the Christ, or the, the, the body of Christ. That's what it's called there. We're baptized into the body of Christ. And so, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of the Christ, in other words, they understood some of Paul's theology. They understood that they were baptized into the body of Christ. They knew more than just, they weren't just raw, raw people that had been saved and didn't know anything. They understood the principles of the body of Christ and our relationship believers one to another. And that involves quite a few things. He said, let us go on to perfection, or if you please, maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they fall away, if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, put him to, putting him to an open shame. Now, that sounds pretty bad. If they fall away, ah, this this is essentially uh, these were. This is almost like a public announcement of saying, "Hey guys, I am I am going back. I I, I don't know Christ. I'm giving up Christianity." It's a it's almost like a public statement of that. What's going on in here? Now it. it what you see here is there's one big problem with this verse. In verse, in verse 6, it says, if. Now, if you have an interlinear text, you can see that the Greek manuscripts that support the New Testament, they do not have that word. This is not a, this is not a question of something that might happen. This is a statement of something that was happening. You see the difference? This is not saying, if you do this, if, fall, if you fall away. No, it doesn't say this. It, says, it literally says, and falling away. In other words, in Paul's mind, there is no doubt what these individuals are doing. They're falling away. Now, what would they be falling away from? 
Well, go right back to verse 1. Leaving the principles of the doctrine of the Christ. They're giving up Christian doctrine. They're turning away from the faith. There are people that are saved. They know what they're doing. They know exactly what they're doing. And you'll, and you'll notice, falling away, it says falling away. Please remember, it says falling away. It doesn't say falling away from God. Falling away in context. You've got to go in context. And what is the thing that they fall away from? Well, the only thing they can fall away from is the first principles. Those things in verses 1 to the principles, that which lies. In other words, they're falling away from the faith. They're giving it up. Now, remember what it said in Acts 21.20? They were going to go back. They, they, they were zealots of the law. They wanted to go back to the law, and they were going to dump these principles and go back to the law. These are the same people, probably. These could be very well the same people. And the book of Hebrews is an interesting book because Paul, back in Acts chapter 21, he blew it. He completely blew it because he went along with them and said, no, I don't teach. I don't teach to give up Moses. He did that. If you remember back there, he got jailed because of that. Remember, he was in the temple, and he was going to fulfill the Jewish ritual. And you know, it's funny thing is, he had written the book of Romans just before Acts 21. Did you know that? And in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, what it is, an important statement said, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to them that believe. He had said that. If you, Well, just for a moment, go to Hebrew, Romans chapter 15. I want you to see that. Because Paul contradicted himself, and he was wrong, and he wound up in jail for four years. Four years, two years at, at, at Caesarea, and two years at Rome. Four years he spent in jail because he did what was wrong. He paid a price for it. And so, I mean, he may have been forgiven, but, you know, sometimes when you think about sin, just remember, you can be forgiven, but there can be consequences of things that you do. If, when you sin, you might do something that has some nasty consequences. So, in Romans chapter 15... Uh, beginning at verse, let's see, um, let's see uh, verse 25. He says, But now I go to Jerusalem to minister to the saints, for it has pleased them of Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor saints which are Jerusalem. And you skip down, and you'll notice that he, had a, he kind of had a premonition it wasn't going to go well. And Paul knew he shouldn't have gone. I think you can see it here, because he says in verse 30, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. He never says this about any other time of prayer. I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake, for the love of God, that you strive together with me in your prayers to, in your prayers to God for me. Strive together with me. He doesn't ever say that anywhere else. Never. So this is something unusual. He's going to Jerusalem, and he wants them to pray. And what is he praying? That I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Jerusalem, and that my service which I have for Jerusalem may be accepted of the saints. His service be accepted. Why would they not accept his service? Because they, they accused him of saying, you're teaching people to turn away from Moses. Put the pieces together. The report had already gotten back that they knew he was teaching the Jew. And he did say in Romans chapter 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. So now when he gets to Jerusalem in Acts 21, and we might as well take a quick look at there again so you can see it. He's, he's challenged. We saw that verse. Let's look a little bit further. You can see that Paul contradicted himself because he has just written, you saw that, he had just written the book of Romans and he just had said, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Now what is he going to do here? Well, back to verse, Acts chapter 20, verse 21, they're informed of you that you teach all the Jews which are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, to, to forsake, depart, leave him, 
saying they ought not to circumcise their children, neither to walk after the customs. What is it therefore? The multitude must needs come together, for they will hear you come. Do this therefore that we say to thee. We have four men which have a vow on them. Take them and purify yourself with them, and be at charges with them, that they may shave their heads, and that all may know that those things whereof they were informed of thee are nothing but that thou thyself also walkest orderly and keepest the law. Did Paul do that? Did he actually walk orderly and keep the law? Uh-uh. No, he didn't. He did not do that. So what did he do? Well, it says, verse 26, Paul took the man and he went into the temple with him. So yes, when he wrote the book of Hebrews, I believe he's writing to these people and he's trying to correct what he did wrong. He went along with what they were doing. He was willing because he loved those people so much. He was willing to compromise what he believed because he loved those people. It, there's, there's a, there is an interesting lesson there to be learned. Even Paul sinned. Even Paul could fail. So if you sin in some way and fail at something that you think is important, don't beat yourself up too much. Oh, I know you want to do it. I've got, I've got my flagellating whip at home. Occasionally I get out when I do something wrong. But, you know, it's really, we don't need it. I don't need it anymore because Paul made a mistake and God... Yeah, he spent four years in jail, but he wrote some letters from, from the jail that uh, did do some good. But still, there was a consequence. So going back to what we're looking at then, you can see when you get to, back into Hebrews chapter 6, that it's, if they fall away, what are they falling away from? They are falling away from a body of doctrine. Now, you'll notice it says they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put them to an open shame. If they go back to Judaism, if they forsake Christianity and give it up, which is what they're it says, and falling away, it's, that's what they were starting to do, then what are they saying about Christ? They have no relationship to him at all. They're, they're renouncing their relationship. They're not just renouncing their relationship with doctrine. They're renouncing their relationship with a person. Because the faith is built upon a person. If you give up the faith, you're giving up the person too. You can't have it any other way. So why are they putting the Son of God to shame? Trotting, putting him to open shame? They're renouncing him. They're saying, no, what he did isn't enough. No, we're going back to Judaism. We're going back to, oh, you know, there's an interesting day called the Day of Atonement. Why would the Day of Atonement be important to think about right now? On the Day of Atonement, what happened? Once a year, the Jews made a sacrifice. And what did that do with their sins? Oh, it took them away, right? No, it covered their sins. Now, if these people go back to that and they say, no, we're going back to Judaism, then when they made that sacrifice, they're saying our sins are covered. What about the work of Christ? Well, we've given that up. We've renounced that. We've put him to an open shame. Do you see what I'm saying? Now, you'll notice in bold font, I have on page two in the middle of the notes, the Jews were on the verge of claiming they had no relationship to the Son of God. That's what would happen by going back to Judaism because Jesus started something new. They had no relationship to him. That is why it is not possible to renew them repentance. They've renounced the one to whom they should repent to the Father. They've renounced him. They've said, no, we have nothing to do with him. So how are you going to get them to come back to God? They've given him up. They're going to, you know, they can't get unsaved, so there's no way, there's nothing that can be, in other words, there's nothing that God can do with these people. Because they've reached an impasse where they won't listen. They've given up. They're giving up. They're getting ready to go away. Now, it's going to get worse than that. But just consider, how do you think God's going to respond to such a thing as this? We alluded to something in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. When you come to the communion table, 
I think everybody knows that there are verses there, for this cause many are weak and sickly among you and many sleep because of the abuse that came in. And what the Corinthians did wrong is they came to the communion table as carnal believers. They were carnal, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, if you have any questions about it. And they brought that carnality to the communion table. And there was a division. And the communion table shows the oneness in Christ. And some of them were drunk, some of them were hungry. They were about as, they were about as united as a ragtag mob on the street corner. They were not united at all. Now, if God would chasten them, how much worse do you think it would be if, they, if you have a group of individuals that say, we don't need Christ. What he did is not important. We're going to go back to, we're going to, go to the day. We're going to go back here to the Day of Atonement. We're going to have our sins covered. What about what Christ did? Oh, no, no. We've, we've, we've given that up. We're going, we're going back. We're done with that sort of thing. Now, in the 10th chapter, I want you to look at one verse that I think will show you. If you were going to show one verse to someone, and I love to find a single verse that will make a point. But in one verse, I can show you, without a doubt, that these individuals were getting ready to permanently leave Christianity. Not just a temporary departure. You know, this verse is used, I've heard it used that people, oh, they missed a couple Sundays at church. Well, Hebrews 10.25 gets drawn out. You've probably heard this. Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Not forsaking the assembly of yourselves together. How many people have heard that used for someone that's missed church a couple times? I want to be honest. Yeah. A few, yeah, there's a few, yeah. Is that what that means? Well, you know what? That word forsake does not mean miss something temporary. I want you to see exactly what it means. And when you see it, you'll know it means permanent. Look over to Hebrews chapter 13. One one of the most wonderful verses in the book of Hebrews. It's a pretty heavy-handed book for the most part. It comes down heavy. But the 13th chapter has some wonderful things in it. And when you get here, I want you to look at what it says in Hebrews 13. Verse 5, let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as you have. For I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Now that's Jesus Christ speaking. I'll never leave you nor will I forsake you. Does that mean that Jesus won't go away for take a weekend trip? That would be silly. I will never permanently go away from you. That's what that word means, to permanently depart. Now, what does that mean back in Hebrews chapter 10? Not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. It doesn't mean they were going to take a couple weeks off. Because they're done. They're done. They are not going to come back at all. They're departed. So that would be the one verse that you can show people. With What was the problem with these people? Number one, they're believers. Number two, they're ready to leave the, the, the whole mass. They're ready to give the whole thing up and renounce it. And that's brought down the house of cards on themselves because now they've done some things they didn't realize. So Paul's telling them, you guys are hoping yourself up. You're going to get it now. You are really going to get it if you don't straighten up. Now, whether these people uh, really had the, the roof coming down on them, I don't know. But I do know in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed. And that would have been very important to these people because that's where do you offer your sacrifices? You go to the temple, the priesthood. So I suspect that maybe they didn't straighten out. And so God said, okay, here's the beginning of the judgment. You're going to lose your temple, and they got pushed out of the land. Uh-huh. God means business. I tell you, when you read Scripture and you see God promises he's going to do something for you, you better believe it. But he also, if he says he's going to do something to you for disobedience, you better believe that too. Because the evidence of Scripture is that God keeps his word, 
whether it's something as a blessing or whether it's something that's a penalty. He's going to keep his word. Now, on page two, at the bottom of five, we have point number five. God did not take the, the actions of the Hebrew believers lightly. The clearest statement of the triune God's opinion is the oft-misunderstood and oft-misused passage. And there it is. That's that passage we read, Hebrews 10, verses 26 through 29. For if we sin willfully, after we've received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for, for, uh, for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall be he thought worthy, who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified, and an holy thing, and hath done despot to the Spirit of grace. Ooh. This is God's analogy. This is what God says these people have done. They've done this. They've trodden underfoot the Son of God. They've counted the blood of a covenant as an unholy thing. They've done despot, the Holy Spirit, who's done all the work in their life. The Holy Spirit's the one that does the work to make people believe, to make people active, to give them the ability, to give them the gift. And if they renounce all the Christian faith, that they're doing despot, they're insulting the Holy Spirit too. Because when they departed from the faith, they're saying the whole thing is no good, and they're insulting the Holy Spirit and the Son of God and the Father who planned it. So when you think about it the right way, what these people did was a horrible thing. And it doesn't sound bad until you get to the 10th chapter. Then you begin to realize, oh my goodness, these people are in trouble. Yeah, they're in trouble, all right. Now, willful sin, in context, was going back, and if you look back in the context, back to Hebrews 10, 14. He said, for by one offering has he perfected them, perfected forever them that are sanctified. By one offering, he, that's Christ, perfected forever. One offering. But now what happens if you, go, if you give that up and go back to the, the Day of Atonement, what happens? You're going back to something and year by year my sins are covered. Now if you look at the top of page 3 in our notes, if you look back to Leviticus 16, you'll find that all the regulations in the whole 16th chapter, we're not going to go there, it's 34 verses, it gives all of the regulations for the Day of Atonement. But you know, there's one word you'll never see in that 16th chapter. And take me up, read through it later. See if you find the word forgiven in Leviticus 16. Because the word atone and atonement really mean to cover and covering. To atone is to cover, and atonement is a covering. Their sins were covered. Now, they were going to go go back to a system that said their sins were covered. And they were going to turn their back and say... We have nothing to do with this. We're giving this up. In other words, what happened? We don't, we don't believe in that. We don't, it's not necessary. It's not part of our lives anymore. We don't have it. In other words, they don't have, they're saying that Christ once for all worked. They don't, they don't believe in it anymore. They're saying that's not true. Well, going back to lead, Judaism says it's not true, doesn't it? Aren't they repudiating it? You see how they're doing desperate to God? They're, they're insulting God. And, and of all the places in Scripture, you'll find a, a very flagrant case of sin Probably the only other place it comes anywhere close to this would be back in Levitic, or back in Exodus when the people said to, to Moses in Exodus 19, all that the Lord has said we will do when all they had done is bellyache in the wilderness. And they said, we're going to do everything the Lord says now. We haven't, but we'll turn over a new leaf. Yeah, where's that? Yeah, I often, I often, I remember the remark someone once said about the turning over a new leaf. So turn over a new leaf. Well, you know what? If a leaf is rotten on this side and turn it over, guess what? It's rotten on the other side too. So they turned over a new leaf, all right. It was just rotten on the other side. So, what are we saying then? 
Well, if you notice point C on the top of page, page 3. This explains why God promised a heavy, heavy penalty if the recipients of the epistles went back to the Jewish sacrifice, especially on the Day of Atonement. Sins were not forgiven, only covered for once a year, and that's what they claimed was doing. In other words, they were saying, what Christ did doesn't matter. We don't have any interest in it. It's not part of our life. We don't believe in any of this. They're renouncing it. That's why you have, that's why you have that heavy judgment there. Because if you look at that, if you stop and think about it, every time you sin, or I sin, back in verse 26 of the 10th chapter, is sin willful? Well, remember what it says in James 1? Since we're that close, just flip over a couple pages to James chapter 1. Is sin willful or deliberate? Well, let's see. In James chapter 1, just a few pages over, beginning at verse 12, Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. You see that, his own lust? The lust comes into your mind, you start to play with it, it becomes personal. In other words, you take it, ah, I like this, I could do this. I could do this. I could lose my temper and throw the hammer across the room. I, you don't think that way, but I could just see in slow motion. You hit your thumb with a hammer. I use that illustration because I've done that so many times in the past. That's why I don't use hammers. I'm afraid of them. But I could just see in slow motion and they're saying, you know, I think maybe it would be a good idea to consider doing something to this hammer. I'm going to throw it across the room. And then I'm going to say all the dirty words I can say so I can feel stupid afterwards. But I'm going to do it. It seems so good. I mean, but that's almost in effect what we do, but it's just like that. So, but you see, the thing is, it says he only, he's drawn away his own lust. It says that when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when, it's, when it is finished, brings forth death. Now, how did we get that lust conceiving? How does lust conceive or bring something forth? I have to do something with it. I have to throw that hammer across the room and say a string of, of blue, you know, turn the air blue. If you've, never, if you've never hit your thumb with a hammer, you don't know what you're missing. Don't, don't try it, though. Don't take my word. Don't try it. It hurts. It really does. I've done it too many times. So what we're saying is these people, they definitely were sinning willfully in a, in a way that you and I are not sinning. I don't think I've ever seen anybody. I can't imagine someone today saying, Oh, you know, I don't like this Christian thing. I'm going to go back to being a Buddhist. I'm going to go back to being a Hindu. I'm going to go back to being a druggie or an alcoholic. This, I don't believe in any of this. The work of Christ doesn't mean anything. Uh, if someone were to do that today, I wonder if this would not come into effect for them, if God might not deal with them accordingly, if they were really saved. I just can't. Personally, I have a hard time understanding how anybody could get to that point of doing this, except that these individuals, well, you do see the... the indication of what would get them in verse 33 of Hebrews 10, partly while you were made a gazing stock, they were being belittled. People, like, it's funny how much, word, you know, they say sticks and stones may hurt your bones, break your bones, but words will never hurt you. I don't think that's true. Sticks and stones will break your words and words can really hurt you is what it should be because they were made a gazing stock by reproaches and afflictions. They were insulted. That got to them. And you became companions of such, and you became companions, verse 34, or you had compassion of me and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. You can see what would make them want to go back. They were insulted, they were belittled, they were ostracized in Jewish society, and they had stuff stolen from them. So I can, I can understand what might have driven them back to that. That's what did it. But that still doesn't, that still doesn't allow them to do what they did. That still doesn't, you know, 
the consequences of what they did are just so great. You can see what God thinks of it. You can think of, now. There are also other dangers. There, there are also now. Point number six, and we're we're just about done. So I want to go through this quickly with you, if I can. There are other verses that that, that uh, show the danger of departing from sin. Uh, unlike the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the sacrifices of the law could never take away sin. Look at, look at the first four verses of the tenth chapter. Now that. You get down to the latter part, it's pretty heavy, but he's building up to that in the 10th chapter. He says, verse 1 of the tap, tap, chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of good things to come. Now, if anybody wants to tell you the law was as good as what we had, they, they had the same thing under salvation as we do, tell me why this verse says the law only had a shadow of good things. We have something better. The law had a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of this, so those things can never with those sacrifices which they make year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? You see what he's getting at here? They wouldn't have to keep offering these things. And you're going to go back to this system? Because one of the worshippers once purged should have no more conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices there's a remembrance made made of sins every year. For it is not possible for the blood of bulls and goats that should take away sins. So you, you see what they're giving up? This is a warning. They're being warned here. But, and, and of course, we just saw he really lowers the boom on them for what they did. But he's already warned them. It's, this builds throughout this book. You'll see that it's in here. Now, this is not the first time, by the way, that, that Paul said that the law is only a shadow and it would never bring anyone to maturity. If you go back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 19, this is pretty consistent. So you can see he's, he's talking about a people who are believers. Because their going backwards would not bring them to maturity. The law couldn't bring them to maturity if they went back to it. Spiritually, they could never mature. And by the way, that's true today. If people want to try and keep the Ten Commandments as the moral code and live by, it says the law brought nothing to maturity. What does that mean? As a Christian, you'll never mature if you try to keep the law. It's that simple. Verse 19 is chapter 7. For the law made what perfect? Nothing. Nothing perfect, but the bringing of better hope did by which we draw near to God. We can draw near to God by a better hope. What does that tell you? They couldn't mature and they could not draw near to God. You think about it for a moment. Was the temple open? Could you come into the temple, into the Holy of Holies, and come before God there? <laughs> Priests could go in there once a year. Only once a year. And there was, there was incense veil. There was smoke. He couldn't even see what was in there very well. But we're invited, in Hebrews 4, it says, to come boldly to the throne of grace. There's a little bit of a difference here. You see, they couldn't draw near to God, but we can. So you'll notice back there, there's, there's something else. The, Hebrews 7.19, the law made nothing perfect. Keep that in mind. Anybody who wants to tell you that you can keep the Ten Commandments and they want to make a moral code, the moral law, then Hebrews 7.19 should be called to remembrance. The law brought nothing to maturity, and it never will. What it will do, go back to Romans 7. We don't have time to go there, but you go to Romans 7 and look at what's said in there. And what the law did to Paul when he tried to live by it, it inflamed his sin nature, it challenged him, and he found himself saying, the good that I would I do not, and that which I hate I do. You go back, I can't say those verses. That's a tongue twister. But you go back to 7th chapter, you can see what happened to Paul. The law will not let anyone mature. You'll never mature spiritually if you want to keep the law. That's, that's, I didn't make that up. It's right here. And the law won't make a person draw near to God. If nothing else, if you keep in the law, you're continually reminded of one thing. 
I'm reminded, yeah, I'm reminded of what a sinner I am because I keep doing things I should do because the law baits me and I can't resist it. I can't overcome my old nature without the power of the Holy Spirit. And a carnal Christian doesn't have that. So I'm going to be continually banging my nose up against my sin and I won't even want to draw near to God. I'll be too ashamed of myself. I know, I've been there. Maybe you folks have never been carnal and, and, and wallowed in that. But I've had that experience in my past. I don't want it again. I won't go back to this kind of living. Now, so if you look, there's one other place right back at the very beginning of this book. Back to Hebrews chapter 2. Right at the beginning, you can see that Paul has a unique way of writing. And I say this is Pauline because of a number of reasons, but not the least of which is the way this builds a law, builds, skillfully builds a case. He's going to start off by talking to the superiority of Christ to different things, but he's also going to mention right off the bat that you don't want to ignore the things you've learned. And then he's going to get a little more specific in the 5th and 6th chapter. Then he's going to get a lot more specific in the 7th chapter. Then he's going to lower the boom in the 10th chapter. But you see the start of it back here in verse, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we've heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. Remember chapter 6, verse 6, falling away? Let them slip, falling away? They, yeah, they, they're ready to let them slip. He says, because, or for, it should be translated because, it's, it's an explanatory word, because if the word spoken by angels was steadfast and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which began to first be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Now, he's putting himself in with them. If we neglect so great a salvation, well, how would you neglect so great a salvation? Well, you'd fall away from the Christ. In chapter 6, you'd let those things slip. You'd let them go. And you'd say, I'm going back to Judaism. I'm forsaking. I'm cutting off permanently with the church. I'm done with it. I'm going back. And you've let it slip away. And he says, how shall we escape? Now, he doesn't tell you yet. But you can see the, follow, the groundwork is laid at this point. By the time you get to the 10th chapter, then he's going to pull out the cork and let the water out. You're going to see, you're really going to get it. But he's already hinted it. You see that here? He's already laid the foundation for that in this, in this part of the book, right at the very front. There's no question that they were going to get it. And so then you'll notice there's one other place in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Just turn over a page, and, and with that we're going to be done. But Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, he says this, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Now, how could they do that, an evil heart of unbelief? Well, they could do it by letting go of the doctrine they had, of, of just falling away from the doctrine of the Christ, giving all of that up because of persecution. You see, the warnings are here. It's building, it's building, it's building. And so if we take this book literally, our conclusion is if we take this book literally, we've only scratched the surface of some of it, but if we take this book literally, we understand literally, there's no question, number one, that these were believers who were going to go back. They were going to go back to living under the law. That's what they wanted. They were already, Hebrews 10.25, they were already in line to do it. And number two, they were going to get it. They were going to get the load dumped on. They were going to get that severe punishment. But the beautiful thing is that is that chapter 10, I hope nobody's scared by that. Because I've known of people to be scared by the 10th chapter. Oh, they're going to get, when they sin, God's going to lower the boom on them. It's just chapter 10. Well, if you do what the Hebrews did, which would be very difficult to do today, seeing as how there's no temple to go back to and you're not a Jew, you might have to worry about that. But if we take this book literally, 
we save ourselves so much headache and so much heartache and so much misunderstanding and so much needless guilt. You know, it, it, the funny thing is, in the New Testament, and I want to close with this, I want you to look over at chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians. So many Christians live with guilt. If you have guilt all the time, I want to tell you something about it. You shouldn't be having it. Because you know what? In Hebrews chapter 11, or rather, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the only time you'll find the word guilty used of a Christian, believe it or not, you can take me up, go home today and look, look this word up. It's guilty. Look at it in the epistles and see how many times you find it used. You're only going to find it here. Verse 11, or 1 Corinthians 11, 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink of this cup unworthily. Now, that goes back to chapter 3. Carnal. Shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. You want to know when you're guilty? If you come to the communion table and you're carnal. Now, what about the rest of your life? Are you guilty? Should you be having guilt all the time because you commit sins and you confess them? Should you be feeling bad and beating yourself up? The only time God holds you guilty, the only time God holds you guilty, is if you come carnal to the communion table. Now, don't go on trying to be more righteous than God and hold yourself guilty when God doesn't. Because if you commit an act of sin and you confess it, you're not guilty. The only time you're guilty is right here. So the message of the book of Hebrews in the 10th chapter is a message you should understand. If you take it literally, you'll see who it's for and why it's there. It's not for you. You shouldn't be feeling guilty. You shouldn't be running around with a cloud of gloom. God's going God's to get me. And when you take the book of Hebrews literally, you'll see it was for a saved people who did something that you and I can't do today. So don't try to put it on yourself. Please, don't do it. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, once again, we're very thankful for your word. We're very thankful that there are so many difficulties in so many places in your word that we could feel guilty, that we could misunderstand, that we could misuse, and our lives could become miserable because of it. But when we come to the word and let it speak for itself, Father, we don't have to do much commenting on it. It's very clear that these were saved people. It's very clear that they would have gone back to the law. It's very clear that they had gone back to the... Day of Atonement, and very clear that they would have said their sins were covered for another year, completely spitting in the face of Christ, as it were, and saying his work didn't matter because they're using the Day of Atonement. Now their sins are covered. They're not taken away. They're covered. Father, we can't do that today. And when we take your word literally, it saves us so much misunderstanding and so much difficulty. And the book of Hebrews isn't such a difficult book, after all, if we just take it literally. It's a problem we won't have, and we're thankful for that. Bless now this truth, these truths to our hearts, and may they make a difference in our lives. We, and may the service that follows, as Brother Courtney speaks, may it be as much a blessing as it usually is, as he's a fine brother, and, and we love listening to him speak. So may he be blessed as well as he speaks. We ask now in our Savior's name. Amen.